0: Um, I am quite obviously a guy, um, so I enjoy guy-type things, and I enjoy uh, ancient history, particularly when folks are fighting each other. That's always the, the interesting stuff to me. Uh, how many of you, if I just show of hands, um, oh, am I not on? I, I turned it on. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, we're good. Oh, hi there. Um, I, I love ancient history, particularly when people are fighting with one another. And how many of you, just by show of hands, if I say the word Thermopylae, anybody ever heard of the Battle of Thermopylae? Uh, Greece, at one point in time, was not one united country. It was multiple city-states. And They generally didn't really get along with each other, Uh, but at one point the area that is now Greece was under threat from invasion of a Persian emperor named Xerxes. Xerxes was bringing his army, and it was roughly 100,000 men, and the Greek people were terrified because we have no way to match a Persian army of 100,000 men. Well, they looked at where the Persians were coming, and the Greek states that didn't always get along decided today what we're going to do is we're going to put aside our petty differences, and we're going to band together. But not all of us are as good at fighting as the others. And the guys from Athens, they were really good at talking, but they weren't good at fighting. Thank the Lord that the guys from Athens were good at fighting yesterday. Amen. Um, but, um, they said, Sparta, you are legendary for your ability to fight and to wage war. So we're going to let you lead the charge. So there were about 6,000 other Greeks and about 300 Spartans. And the 300 Spartans said, okay, the other 6,000 of you, we want you behind us. And we 300 are going to take on this army of 100,000. And they had a plan. See, what they did was they went into this little bottleneck area that was kind of like this. It looked like a funnel. So what they did was they stationed these 300 Spartans right here in this little funnel, in this little bottleneck. So that when the 100,000 Persians came at them, they couldn't bring the full force of their army to face these 300 men. They had to go in in smaller numbers. And when they sent in in smaller numbers, the Greeks had these huge long spears. So the Spartans were just rotating who was on their front line, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Persians died running into these 300 Spartans because those 300 refused to move. And finally, the Persians, they would have pulled back if it weren't for a Greek trader who left and went to Xerxes and said, you know, if you pay me, I can tell you how you can get around and you can get rid of these Spartans. And Xerxes said, please, I've already lost so many. He said, there's actually a back path that only the locals know about. And if you send some of your troops around this back path, you'll flank them on both sides and they won't be able to retreat. Because what the Spartans had also been doing is they finally got bored with just killing the Persians and they started playing games with them. They would act like they were tired and scared and retreat. And then they would run even more Persians into the bottleneck. And then they'd turn around and wipe them out and push back to the front. Well, finally the Persians came around them and ended up wiping these 300 out. But there's something to be said for being willing to stand your ground. For having a strategy. For having a plan. For knowing your enemy, knowing their capabilities, and knowing what it's going to take from you. That battle is legendary. Look it up. It's called the Battle of Thermopylae. And this is the reason that when you hear the term Spartan referring to a person, that's a tough person. That's somebody that's not going to back down. They're not going to give up. Well, if you will turn in your copy of God's Word to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, we're getting ready to kind of rock it on toward the end of this book. We've only got two sermons left in it, y'all. It's only taken 75% of a year to get this far. Um, I don't know about y'all, but I've been, I've been enjoying it. Ephesians is an extremely influential book, and we're coming to the, to the close of it. But if you'd stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read verse 10 through verse 13. Verse 10 through verse 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren... Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you use it to change our hearts and make us look more like Jesus today than we did when we got here. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Who is the real enemy? Because Paul has now shifted from what is known as the household code in Ephesians. How should we relate to one another in Christ? He has shifted to using the language of war. Which leads us to ask the question, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Well, since Paul's been talking to Ephesian Christians, most of whom would have been Gentile, we would have to assume that Paul is going to refer to the church as the good guys. So who are the bad guys? We're going to talk about who the real enemy is today. Paul told the Ephesian church to prepare themselves for spiritual warfare instead of physical warfare. Because they're real enemies are spiritual in nature. So if that's what Paul told them, we should understand that our true enemy is spiritual and not physical in nature. And we should be constantly armed and prepared for spiritual warfare. I want us to look at three uh, ways that we need to be strong and we need to be prepared for war today from these three verses. So starting in verse 10, uh, Paul says, Finally, my brethren... Be strong. We're going to talk about being strong in the Lord's power, not necessarily our own. Uh, Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong. Uh, This is the beginning of the last of Paul's exhortations in this book. So that should probably make you think that this is going to carry a little bit of extra weight. This is the last thing Paul is saying in this letter. This is closing out. He said everything else he needs to say. And this is his final exhortation. This is to the brethren. This is to Christians. Not to the general population. Y'all, this is important. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, there are certain tools, protections, and benefits that are not available to you. I want to make that very clear. The armor of God, the panoplon of God, which I'll explain in just a minute, that is only available to Christians. That is the only part of this passage that is not generally applicable. The enemy who, is, who wants to defeat you, that is for everybody. The difference between those who have trusted Jesus and those who have not trusted Jesus is that those who have trusted Christ have been armed to the teeth against Satan and those who have not trusted Christ have already been beaten by him because you're not prepared. So that that just needs to be said at the outset. Paul is talking to the brethren. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're scared of the devil, good, you should be. It got heavy real quick, didn't it? Let's move forward. Paul says, "Be strong." Now, this is worn out. Anybody who's ever used any Greek in a sermon has used this word. The word "strong" is the word "dunamis." It's where we get the word "dynamite." It means explosive. It means powerful. This is this is not just kind of you know be strong, hang tight. This is no. This is be tough, be explosive, be powerful. Uh, He says, be strong. Now, some translations do not say, uh, be strong. They say, be strengthened. That's because this is an interesting construction grammatically. And I'm, I'm not trying to take you to grammar school here for a second. But this is important, which is why I'm bringing it out. It's an imperative, which means Paul is saying, do this. It is a command. Christians, be strong. But... It's also a passive. Which means the subject is receiving an action from something else. So Paul is commanding you, Christian, to do something that you are not doing to yourself. He is saying, Christian, be strengthened. Receive strength. This is not a command to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, to grit your teeth, have you ever seen somebody riding a roller coaster? This is my favorite thing. I love roller coasters. I love them so much because I love people watching when I'm on them. And you can always tell somebody who's never on a roller coaster before because they're sitting in the seat and they're grabbing the rail so tight that it, it looks like all all of the skin color on their knuckles looks like my face. <laughs> and they're they're just like... Every muscle in their body is tensed up. And I just, occasionally you can be mean and you can just be like, you know, if that harness pops loose, that's not going to help you. You know, it, yes, I know I'm a horrible person, but it's so fun because you ride and then they're just behind you going, ah! You know, it's, it's great. That hurt. Um, but they're, they're, there's white knuckling, they're gripping tight, they're trying hard. They're trying to, by their own strength and their own willpower, Fight against gravity and inertia and all of these forces that are way stronger than them. That's pretty similar to this. Paul is commanding the church. He's commanding Christians to have strength. But the strength is not their own. He's not saying dig deep in you and find the strength you didn't know you had. That's what prosperity preachers will tell you. You're stronger than you know how to be. You just got to dig deep and find it within you. No, you can dig deep. It ain't in there. You don't have it. You're You're not as spiritually strong in and of yourself as you think you are. How do I know this? Because Paul says, be strong in who? In the Lord. And in the power of His might. The strength That Paul is telling you to have, he's not saying dig deep in you and find this strength. He's saying, Christian, be strengthened in the Lord. The strength is not your own. The strength is His. And you need to depend upon that. Now, he says in the Lord and in the power of his might. So let's break this down into two halves. One, be strengthened by his person. And two, be strengthened by his power. Now, if you've been coming to Sunday school with us, we're in Exodus, which is one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. And when God calls Moses... Listen to what God responds to to Moses with when he questions him. Exodus chapter, this is on your handout if you grab one in the back. Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, I want to pause there. Moses had the right idea at this point. Moses is saying, God, I'm not qualified I'm not able to do what you call me to do by myself. I, I, don't, I can't do this. And at this point, that's, that's an okay response. Later on, when he keeps on complaining, then we have issues. But at this point, he's okay. Look at how God responds. God says, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What was God's reassurance to Moses that this was going to go well? God did not argue with Moses that that he, he was a nobody. Did you catch that? Moses said, God, I'm a nobody. God did not argue with him. He didn't disagree. Moses was a nobody. It doesn't matter if he's raised in the household of Pharaoh or not. He was a nobody. God's reassurance was, I'll be with you. It wasn't Moses' strength that was the issue. It was God's. So saying God's with you, if you understand who God is, that's comfort. But way too often than not, we're prone to forget who God is. Have you ever done that? You you may say, no, I know God's powerful. No, I know God's good. No, I know God's love me. But you forget what God is powerful actually means. Again, back in Sunday school this morning, we were talking, these Israelites in Exodus, they had been in slavery for 400 years. They knew who their God was. Some of them had worried that He had forgotten them. So that when they saw that he had, he had seen their affliction, that he had heard their cry, they bowed their head in worship. But as soon as Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I don't know this God. I'm going to make life more miserable on these people. I'm going to, take, I'm going to make their job harder. These people say, why would you do this to us? We thought this was going to be easy. And you came in here and our lives harder. God said, I will show them. Who I am. They knew he was with them. They just forgot what he was capable of. So fast forward to Matthew chapter 8. 26 and 27. This is also on your handout. We're crossing the sea. And Jesus is asleep. In the bottom of a boat. Okay. They know who Jesus is. They know he's with them. But they don't quite fathom his power. But he said to them, "Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? A storm! Bl- Imagine this. How appropriate is this? A massive storm comes up out of nowhere, and they're panicking. Anybody seen the pallets of bottled water at Ingles? They're out." They're panicking. They're running around the ship. They're, they're pulling ropes. They're all kinds of... What are you doing? Jesus, don't you care? We're out here perishing. And Jesus rubs the little, the little sleep stuff out of his eye and he walks upstairs and he's standing out there in the gale and he just looks around he's like, why are you fearful? Are you a little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds in the sea and there was a great calm. Yeah, some, let, tell somebody in Tampa to walk outside today and look at Irma and go, quit now! See if it works. Jesus ain't even been up from his nap five minutes and he's shutting the storm down. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. There's plenty of things you can't do. There's plenty of things you don't have the strength for. There's plenty of things you're not equipped to do. Jesus is. It's His strength you're called upon. So in verse 11, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, the panoplia. It's a Greek combination of two words pan, meaning all, and oplon, meaning weapons and armor. I was excited to see that oplon meant both. Because often when we study the armor of God, which we're going to get to next week, we only focus on the defensive equipment. There's a sword in there too, y'all. There's weaponry in there. And God provides both the armor and the weaponry. And it's His strength. Whose armor is it? It's God's. It doesn't just mean that God is the source of the armor. It means that God is the owner and provider of the armor. It's not yours. You can't dig in yourself and find this equipment. Put on the whole armor of God, the panoply of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, the wiles is the Greek word methodia. It means it's where we get the English word methods. That Satan, I know this shocks you, but Satan has got humanity's number and has had it for a while. He's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, but he ain't stupid either. He's been tricking humans since humans was. It's bad grammar, it's good theology. There hadn't been but two humans on planet earth and Satan has done ruined the race. He's got our number. He has methods. He knows humans. Humans. He's been messing with us and twisting us and lying to us and using us and destroying us since we have been. He's been around longer than human history has existed. He knows how we work. He has methods. He has wiles. He has tricks. And thank God... Jesus has provided for us the panoplia, the full armor of God with which we can stand against the methods of the devil. Short of God's armament, you will not stand against the devil's methods. It is not willpower that will give you the ability to stand. Only God's power will do that. And listen. I threw this in. I questioned whether or not I should have added this verse, but I felt like I needed to. Y'all, there is a lie, and we're going to come back to this, that God is this stuffy old man that doesn't want you to have any fun, and Satan's the one that's got all the fun stuff. Let me tell you what Jesus said about Satan. John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Listen to me. It does not matter how good what it seems what Satan is offering you. It doesn't matter how fun... Whatever it is Satan's offering you may seem. It doesn't matter how easy, how no strings attached, it may seem. Satan's goal is always to kill you and see you thrown into hell along with him and everybody else. That is his goal. He does not treat you as a friend. He does not have your best interests at heart. He does not care about your enjoyment except that it is a vehicle to expedite your journey to eternal torment. That is all He cares about for you. You need God's weaponry. It's it's not... This is not a joke. It's not a game. Other than the strength of Almighty God, you cannot even fight against the forces of Satan in darkness. You have no hope. Be strong in the Lord's strength. And second, be cunning through the Lord's intelligence. And this is probably where we're going to camp for a little bit. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle. This is actually a noun in Greek. The Holman Christian Standard says our battle and the New American Standard says our struggle. reason I point this out is there is a battle. You might say, well, I'm not struggling. I'm not fighting. I don't feel like I'm in a battle. I feel like I'm at peace. Here's the truth, y'all. There is a battle whether or not you're engaged in it. Have you ever seen two folks get in a fight and one person just stands there? If there are two folks and one of them wants to stand there and the other one of them wants to fight, who's going to end up getting whooped? The one who's just standing there. Listen, y'all. Satan is the one who wants to fight. You ever seen an ostrich? you like watching National Geographic or, or Discovery Channel. Ostriches are stupid. Ostriches, they have this idea, if I can't see it, it can't see me. So they'll take their head and they'll stick it in the dirt. And I almost wonder if there's like some, you know, big cat or something like a lion. I don't even know if lions hunt ostriches, but we're going to imagine a lion you got to imagine being this lion who comes up, and the ostrich has seen him coming, and he's like, oh no! And his head's in the dirt, and this lion's just got to walk up and be like, you for real? Like, I mean, he's just looking at him. That lion's going to wail on that ostrich. Because the ostrich doesn't want to fight. The lion doesn't care. That's kind of the same thing with the church. You may not want to fight. You may not want conflict. You may not want to struggle. Devil doesn't care. Demons don't care. Well, I just want to live peacefully. They want you in hell. They don't want you to live peacefully. They don't care. The only way they'll let you live peacefully is they'll let you live peacefully for between 75 and maybe 90 years so that you'll die and go to hell comfortably without Jesus. That's when they'll let you live in peace. I'm not, I'm not trying to be hellfire and brimstone. I'm just I'm just preaching the text. Let's go. For our struggle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen to what Jesus said in John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not here. Y'all, you do know that Jesus did not intend for us to set up his kingdom on earth. Kind of like a city, state or government. You, you know that, right? It's not the goal of Christianity to have a big spot on the map that says Christian land. Whatever, call, call it whatever you want. Some folks call it America. Did I say that? Now I'm not saying we don't participate in, in politics. I'm not saying that, that we, we don't fight for freedom. We do. But what I am saying is that We're not the ones who build God's kingdom. He's the one who builds His kingdom. We're not the ones who rule God's kingdom. He's the one who rules His kingdom. Our battle as Christians is primarily not against flesh and blood. It is spiritual in nature. Look at this next long list of stuff but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age. These are all rabbinical terms for spiritual creatures. Fallen angels, also known as demons. Now some of y'all might think this pastor is about to put on his tinfoil hat, but I think most of you will will not be shocked by what I'm about to say. Your pastor, Stapleton Baptist Church very literally believes in demons just as much as I believe in angels just as much as I believe in heaven and hell why do I believe in demons? because Jesus believed in demons he chucked them around like rag dolls but they were real now ask me this question if demons are not real. If you say, oh, oh, Josh, this is 2017. You can't honestly believe in demons in 2017. You calling Jesus a liar? Was Jesus just putting on a show? Did Jesus have some trick that made a herd of pigs run off a cliff? No, he cast a bunch of demons out of somebody into him. That's why they went running. Jesus wasn't just putting on a show. Demons are real. And Paul says, they are the ones with which we are at war. You say, well, I'm not at war. Well, they're at war with you. Whether or not you're at war with them, they're at war with you. And if you want to if, if you want to see that this battle is spiritual in nature, I didn't put it on your handout because it's in the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, so Paul's talking to Christians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Before you were Christians, remember, he made you alive. That's when he saved you. That's when Jesus saved you. Before Jesus saved you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You want me to translate that into layman's terms? If you're here today and you're not saved, imagine yourself wearing a jersey that says Satan's team on the front of it. I mean, I don't know how to put it any any more clearly than that. That Paul says, if you are not in Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are walking according to Satan. He's playing the drum and you're marching. That's what's happening. I'm not marching according to the will of Satan. I do whatever I want. That's what Satan's drum sounds like. I do whatever I want. And Satan's saying, good, you keep right on doing that. That's exactly what I do. Just like Him. They're at war. And second, Colossians 1.13. This is on your handout. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Let's do some critical reading here. If He has conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son, what does that mean about the kingdom before? We weren't in it. So if we weren't in the kingdom of the Son of His love before... Whose kingdom were we in? We were in the kingdom of the power of darkness. And who did Ephesians just tell us the ruler of the power of darkness was? Satan. If you are here today and you have not given yourself to... I'm not trying to insult you. I'm trying to help you. you telling me I'm, I'm... I work for Satan. I'm not telling you anything. God's Word is. It's not about whether or not you believe me. It's about whether or not you believe the Bible. I'm just telling you what Paul is warning you with. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't belong to Jesus, then Satan has got you hooked. I remember hearing a song in college that they... they, cut a line from a movie and stuck on the beginning of it. I don't know the song. I don't know the movie. So don't blame me. I, I just, when I heard it, it stuck in my head because I thought it was really appropriate. It said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, pulled is convincing you he's not there. And like that, poof, he's gone. How many of you, when you're tempted by sin, you don't ever think that there's demonic involvement? But somehow or another, there's a little voice in the back of your head going, That'd be fun. That'd be neat, wouldn't it? Nobody would know that. You could have, why shouldn't you have this? bunch of stuffy folks don't want you to enjoy your life. You ought to have what it is you want. You deserved it. You earned it. Take what you want. Who's telling you that? Where did that voice come from? You're at war. Now, a couple of application points before we move on. One, don't get hoodwinked into fighting battles that are not our main concern. Our our, our battle is against spiritual enemies. Our main battle. Don't be one of those Christians who is convinced that we will usher in the second coming of Christ. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Here we go. Don't be one of those Christians who is convinced that we will usher in the second coming of Jesus if we can just reach a certain threshold of politicians with your letter of choice behind their names in Washington. If we can just elect enough, blah, 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 and get them in government, then oh, the world will be better. We will have won that battle. Jesus will come back. The world will be perfect. That's not the kingdom Jesus came to build. Oh, if I could just get my kids to behave this way. Your kids are not the enemy. If my brothers or my sisters or my husband or my wife or my boss or whatever, if they would just behave this way, they're my enemy. No, they're not. Well, you don't know how those people are treating me. I know those people are just as much at war with Satan and the enemy as you are. And it would probably help our outlook on other people if we look at somebody and we say, Okay, Do they have access to the armor of God? Have they given themselves to Jesus Christ? Or are they just sitting ducks for the enemy? Because if they're sitting ducks for the enemy, it makes total sense that they would treat you that way because they're marching according to Satan's drum. Have some mercy on them. Pray for them. If Satan can make you hate them, you're helping him. You're not going to pray for them. Y'all, I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. I don't want anybody in hell. Why? Why? Why don't I want anybody in hell? Because God doesn't want anybody in hell. God literally said, "You will go to hell over my dead body." We're remembering it today. Don't get hoodwinked into fighting battles. That aren't theirs. And also, don't get hoodwinked into being an ostrich. Please don't. Don't feel like you can stick your head in the spiritual dirt and because you're ignoring it, they'll ignore you. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy for everyone. So, your battle is against spiritual enemies. The battle is there. Are you engaged? And then finally, be resilient through the Lord's armor. Verse 13. Therefore. Anytime you see the therefore, you've got to go back and see what the therefore is there for. So, since there's a therefore, why is he saying take up the whole armor of God? Because you're at war. Because there are demonic forces at war for you. And God has provided you weaponry to fight. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now this is very similar to verse 10 and verse 11. So we're not going to go back and necessarily rehash all of that. But there are some new words here on the end of verse 13. That's where I want us to spend our time. Paul says, and having done all to stand. Now what does this mean? This is, uh, this is from uh, John Chrysostom. He's one of my favorite early church uh, fathers. He's one of the first expositors. And I joke and tell people he's one of the first Baptists. He was one of the first preachers in the early church to move the pulpit to the middle because he thought the preaching of the Word of God should be central in worship. And to which I heartily say... I agree, even if I don't have cool robes and a beard like he did. This is what he said on this passage. Even after the victory, we must stand. An enemy may be struck, but things that are struck revive again if we do not stand. But if after having fallen, they rise up again, so long as we stand, they are fallen. So long as we waver not, the adversary rises not again. Have y'all ever watched Rocky? I love Rocky. Back when Sylvester Stallone looked scary, it was some of the greatest. That he gets walloped in the early rounds of those fights, but I can't think of a, of a guy I've ever seen. And most girls I've seen watch that movie. You see Rocky pushing back up off that mat, and he stands back up, and he puts his hands back up, and you look at you like you were an idiot, Sly. He's gonna tear you up, but you know what? He keeps standing up, and it. Eventually, the guy that he's fighting is like, I can't beat this guy. He won't stay down. And they ended up giving in. In the movie, Rocky's the good guy. In this situation, the, the enemy's the bad guy. And what Chrysostom is saying is, yeah, you might beat sin once. Now, I'm not talking salvation. Jesus, Jesus beat sin once for all. If, you're, if, if, if the blood of Christ has covered you, that, that he, he's got you, He saved you by his power, He'll keep you by his power. But in your own personal life, do you, do you beat sin one time and then you're never tempted by it again? No. It's a daily fight, day after day, after day after day. Y'all, the armor enables you to stand up. It enables you to go rocky on sin. It, 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 even if it beats you, it won't keep you down. But if you beat it with the armor, you've got to stay alert because you know what it's going to do tomorrow? It's going to come back. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, right on down to glory until eventually we're saved from, from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. One day it'll be gone. That day's not today. So you've got to put on the panoply of God, the whole armor, and you've got to pull out that sword and hold up that shield and say, come on, God has equipped me to fight you. And it will keep standing up, and you, having done all, stand. Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. They've done everything God asked them to do. They left Egypt. They're standing on the banks of the Red Sea. And they see Egypt coming, and they're ready to buckle. They're ready to cave. And Moses says to them, stand. Stand. That's all you have to do. Hold your ground, and God will take care of your enemy for you. Christians, that is the truth. All you have to do, the battle is won. God's won the battle for you. All you have to do is you have to stand. So, having said this, you've got a few options. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But before that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have an opportunity to respond to what you just heard. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you are standing like a sitting duck in front of the devil and his forces. You have no hope of winning that battle. It doesn't matter how hard you try. And his goal is to see you dead and in hell, and he will not rest until it happens. Praise God, you have hope. Jesus has defeated the devil. And He can give you that victory as well. All you have to do is trust in His finished work on the cross. You have several ways that you can respond and you can come talk to me about that. You can come down the aisle. We're about to sing a couple uh, of verses of a hymn. Joyce and Abby are going to lead us. Um, You can come down the aisle. You can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin. You can meet me after the service. Um, After that happens, our deacons are going to come. And we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. And then after that, before we leave, we will take the offering. So those are the next three things that are going to happen. We're going to sing a couple verses. And then uh, when we're done with the invitation, deacons, if you'll just come down, I'll signal you. Um, But actually, deacons, if you could just make your way to the front row, those of you who are going to be able to help the Lord's supper this morning, um, if you could just come on down to the front row so that we could be ready for that as soon as we're uh, done with the invitation. I'll pray if you need to come you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the full armor. Thank you for the protection that you provide us. Um, Lord, I pray that you bless this time of invitation, that if you're working in a heart, Lord, you would draw them to yourself. Lord, for those of us that know you, I pray that you would help us focus on your broken body and shed blood today, um, that we would remember how what it took for you to win the battle for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Yeah.